tonight's program. It's been more than 152 years since an event here in Virginia lit the spark that resulted in the conflagration that was the American Civil War. Of course, I'm talking about John Brown's dramatic actions at Harper's Ferry in October 1859. Well, as we make our way through the 150th anniversary of our great national trauma, the Civil War, it's essential that we come to grips with the man in the minds and on the lips of soldiers north and south marching off to war. Confederates, of course, feared Brown's goal of a massive bloody slave revolt, and Union troops sang of his body moldering on in the grave, but his soul marching on. Now, John Brown's raid has been written about frequently, but never so eloquently as by our speaker tonight. We're extremely privileged to have Tony Horowitz at the VHS just three weeks after the appearance of his latest book, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Since the book launch, it has zoomed to the top of the charts at Amazon, and he has been a hot property on the talk show circuit. In fact, he appeared just last night on the News Air Hour with Jim Lehrer, which was a great appearance, and he did very well. Now, here's what another best-selling author, Eric Larson, has said about the book. Quote, there's a brilliance to this book that put me in mind of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Only Horowitz's Midnight Rising is set deeper in America's dark past. With stunning, vivid detail, he has captured the sheer drama and tragedy of John Brown and that bloody raid at Harper's Ferry that helped propel America toward civil war. Tony Horowitz is a graduate of Brown University and Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. He's worked as a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal and as a staff writer for The New Yorker. His writing assignments have taken him around the world, and his previous books include A Voyage Long and Strange, Rediscovering the New World, and a book familiar probably to many of you, Confederates in the Attic. He'll be available after the lecture, of course, to inscribe his latest book in the museum shop, and it does make a wonderful holiday gift. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Tony Horwitz, who will speak to us about Midnight Rising, John Brown, and the raid that sparked the Civil War. I'm hiring this guy as my publicist. He's, uh, he's good. Uh, anyway, it's great to be back at the Virginia Historical Society. I was last here about a year and a half ago while researching this book. Um, uh, your library has uh, some wonderful uh, documents, uh, some of which I'd never seen cited in writings about Brown, which is sort of what you dream of as a researcher. Uh, so thank you, Bill Abracta and Francis Pollard and any of the library staff who are here. It was really great. Um, I was also lucky to be here when the John Brown show, The Portent, was up. Um, great show. And the book, I know I'm supposed to be pumping my own, but uh, the book, The Portent, is, uh, I think, for sale in the shop, and I can... Uh, uh, strongly recommend it. Um, I'm going to try and be a, a, perhaps a little on the brief side tonight and leave lots of time for questions because I find this subject arouses uh, strong uh, passions and opinions. Uh, so I want to leave plenty of time uh, for you to air it out. So don't be uh, shy when I'm done. Um, but I'll, I'll just start by saying that I uh, had a lot of fun uh, doing this book, which isn't always the case. 
Uh, and one reason for that is I got to spend a lot of time in Harper's Ferry, uh, which is really my kind of town, a uh, very picturesque, history-haunted place uh, where strange things still happen. Uh, on my first research trip there, I was on my way to the archives, and a park ranger told me that there was a John Brown beard-growing contest in progress up the street. Um, not a uh, fast-paced uh, spectator sport, but uh, still. Um, also, as I learned in my research, uh, Harper's Ferry has really been a tourist trap almost since the day of John Brown's raid. They started selling uh, pikes, one of which is uh, in the museum exhibit upstairs, and bricks from John Brown's fort. And uh, today you can still visit uh, wonderful sites like the uh, John Brown Wax Museum, shown on the left, uh, where you can learn all kinds of history that never actually happened. <laughs> Um, I also had fun with this project because the protagonist of this story, John Brown, is such a vivid and compelling figure and quite different, uh, I discovered, uh, from the way most uh, Americans imagine him. Uh, in art and lore, he's often depicted as this wild-eyed, wild-haired uh, fanatic, probably insane, a, a sort of self-appointed prophet, uh, as he appears here in this uh, famous mural from the Kansas State House uh, with a Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other. Um, but this really isn't true to the man, uh, beginning with that beard. Um, for most of his life, uh, John Brown was actually a well-groomed uh, American striver and family man uh, who favored uh, starched white shirts and leather cravats and dark suits and made business trips to Europe. Um, he didn't grow that famous scary beard of his uh, until the last 18 months of his life when uh, he had a price on his head and went underground and had to disguise his identity. His background was also really classically American, uh, not unlike uh, Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he's born in 1800 uh, to old Yankee farming stock in Connecticut, uh, migrates with his family as a boy to the Ohio frontier, uh, is educated at a log schoolhouse, and for the first few decades of his life, this future insurrectionist is really something of a conformist. Uh, he follows his father's path very closely. He adopts his uh, father's uh, staunch uh, Calvinism, uh, his father's trade of leather tanning, um, and he marries young uh, at his father's prompting, he writes, uh, to a woman that uh, John Brown describes as remarkably plain but industrious and economical, of excellent character, earnest piety, and good practical sense. Uh, very romantic words. Uh, <laughs> for your spouse. Um, and Brown uh, is also this tremendously uh, ambitious, self-confident man who throughout his life uh, does things on a big scale, uh, beginning with family. Uh, he will ultimately father 20 children. Um, and in the entrepreneurial uh, spirit of the 1830s, the age of Jackson, uh, he tries to get rich. Um, he starts uh, investing in land, borrowing money, buying property, subdividing it. He's a land developer until this property boom goes bust in the financial uh, panic of 1837. And Brown, like thousands of other Americans, is driven into bankruptcy. 
Uh, and one of the more pathetic uh, documents I found in my research was an Ohio court record of what Brown's family uh, was allowed to keep for their survival uh, when they were declared bankrupt. Uh, and it included two earthen crocks broke, three bags old, eight women's and children's aprons, and a tin pail valued at six cents. Um, this uh, destitute family also endures uh, repeated tragedies. Uh, Brown's first wife dies young in childbirth, as his own mother had done when he was only eight. And of those 20 children he fathered, he buries nine of them before the age of 10. Um, and in his 40s, he bounces back from these losses and from bankruptcy to become a prominent wool merchant, uh, only to once more overreach and go bust uh, yet again. Um, so this uh, tremendously ambitious man enters his 50s uh, really as a failure, uh, barely able to support uh, this large family that's already been through so much hardship and loss. Um, I'll just add, this is a picture of his second wife, Mary, uh, with two of their young daughters. Uh, I think it's fair to say they don't look very happy. Um, but this is what, uh, to me, is, is most remarkable about Brown. Um, he has this, this burning passion, this unbending conviction that sustains him through all these Job-like trials. He's descended from Puritans and Revolutionary War soldiers and believes that America's founding promise of freedom and equality can only be fulfilled through the destruction of slavery. And he believes it's his God-given destiny to do the job. And he clings to this mission for decades, uh, quietly laying the groundwork uh, until in his mid-50s, uh, this penniless, obscure man explodes onto the national scene uh, as the country's leading anti-slavery warrior. Um, I have to say there's a lot about Brown that troubles me. Uh, he's almost an Ahab figure, uh, this very obsessive character who's uh, uh, dragging others down with him in this sort of uh, chase after the white whale, which in his case is the destruction of slavery. Um, and, you know, part of the sort of suspense for me of, of researching this book and I hope for reading it is figuring out how you feel about this complicated man. Um, but I have to say now that I'm in my 50s, um, you know, I'm very struck by his resilience and his capacity to remake himself at what was then considered an advanced age. Uh, in his 50s, he's often referred to as the old man. Um, and also his willingness to take on uh, the great moral issue of his day, despite all his worldly trevise. He forces you to think about your own life and what's possible. It's a really a, a very American story. Um, but his militant abolitionism doesn't spring out of nowhere. He's radicalized by his times, and I think this is another aspect of uh, Brown's story and perhaps the country's that is uh, often misunderstood, um, largely because of Gone with the Wind, from which I've stolen this picture. Um, I think many Americans still uh, imagine the, the pre-Civil War South as this uh, doomed society, feudal and agrarian, uh, clinging to this uh, uh, slave economy that's destined to be swept away by, in a modernizing, uh, industrializing uh, world. And because we look back at the uh, so-called Old South uh, through the prism of its loss in the Civil War, uh, it has this aura of underdog and lost cause. 
but to Americans in the 1850s and, and earlier who obviously couldn't see the future, uh, things looked altogether different. Uh, the South uh, didn't seem an underdog. In many ways, it was the top dog. Uh, politically, the South holds sway over the White House, the Supreme Court, and much of Congress for almost the entire era between the nation's founding uh, and the Civil War. And the cotton economy, uh, far from wilting away, is booming. It's an engine of the national and global economy. Uh, it's worth more than all of uh, America's other exports uh, combined. And the value of uh, the South's four million slaves is worth more than the entire nation's industry, railroads, and banks combined. Um, and slavery also isn't uh, fading away. Uh, it's on the march in this era in states like Texas. And uh, pro-slavery fire eaters are urging the nation uh, to annex Cuba and Central America so they can have more lands um, to plant and enslave. Um, and you also have this sense from reading the letters and diaries and, and news reports uh, from this era that even though the North uh, has most of the nation's population and industry, it's the South that's the uh, uh, brasher, more aggressive region, boasting that cotton is king and no one dare defy it. Uh, and this is illustrated most graphically in 1856 uh, when a Massachusetts senator, Charles Sumner, gives a, a really stinging speech about slavery and its defenders. And in reply, uh, a South Carolina congressman, Preston Brooks, uh, approaches Sumner, raises his gold-headed cane, and beats Sumner almost to death on the floor of the Senate in plain sight. Uh, and for this act, uh, Brooks is lionized in the South uh, for, quote, lashing into submission the Senate's uh, most vocal uh, foe of slavery. Um, so there's a sense, really, that anti-slavery Northerners feel really beaten up and bullied and pushed around by what they called the slave power. Um, uh, this, by the way, is a political cartoon of uh, uh, President Pierce and Stephen Douglas um, uh, forcing slavery down the throat of a free soiler while two Southern leaders uh, help out. There's a wonderful phrase uh, in this era for weak uh, northern uh, Democrats, they're called dough faces because they're half-baked and malleable in the hands of uh, slaveholders. Um, and this is uh, why Brown has so much power. He's the rare uh, northerner in this era who punches back hard. Uh, most abolitionists are staunch pacifists. Uh, they believe in fighting slavery through education and moral uplift. Uh, Brown derides this as what he calls milk-and-water abolitionism, weak and ineffectual. Uh, to him, slavery is a state of war and must be met in kind. And he does so first in Kansas, which in the mid-1850s is really the front line in the conflict over uh, whether slavery will extend to new western territories. And when Brown arrives there um, in 1855, joining his uh, sons who have settled there, uh, he comes with only 60 cents in his pocket. Uh, the uh, pro-slavery forces really have the upper hand. Uh, they're intimidating and sometimes killing northern settlers uh, who want Kansas to enter the Union as a free state. Um, and the very same week that Sumner is caned in the Senate, uh, they also pillage the free state capital of Lawrence, Kansas. And then comes Brown. Uh, within days of these... Uh, 
two shocking events. He leads uh, a party, including four of his sons, uh, in a night raid on a pro-slavery settlement in Kansas, drags five men from their beds, and hacks them to death with broadswords. Uh, as one of his sons uh, later explains it, the enemy needed shock treatment, death for death. Uh, this not only shocks and terrorizes uh, uh, Southerners in Kansas, it ignites uh, a much broader and more savage conflict there than uh, uh, was the case before. It's at this point that it becomes known as Bleeding Kansas. And Brown is right there in the middle of it, um, fighting pro-slavery forces in pitched battle. I think it's often forgotten that five years before the first battle of Manassas, you have Northerners and Southerners killing each other over slavery in Kansas, sometimes in open field combat uh, with cannon and musket. But Brown, uh, as always, is thinking big. Uh, he doesn't want to uh, spend the rest of his career fighting uh, southern border ruffians and pukes, as they were called by uh, northerners in Kansas. Um, he wants to take his crusade into Africa, which is his code for the slaveholding South. He's going to lead a guerrilla party uh, through the mountains to Harper's Ferry, uh, seize its federal armory and its 100,000 guns, uh, free and armed slaves, uh, and continue moving through the mountains south in this uh, rolling campaign of liberation, or at least this is uh, his plan. And he's going to use his Kansas fame uh, to raise money and guns uh, for this crusade. So he goes east from Kansas in full freedom fighter persona and really wows the uh, rather effete armchair abolitionists of New England who are intoxicated by this uh, rough-hewn uh, uh, frontier warrior arriving uh, from Kansas. Uh, it's a little like the 1960s when you had uh, wealthy New Yorkers uh, hosting Black Panthers and other radicals. Uh, you know, they're, they're intoxicated by this, uh, by this man. Um, he dines with uh, Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, he's feted in lecture halls and salons across New England. Uh, uh, one transcendentalist, Bronson Alcott, describes him as the manliest man I have ever met. Um, and a Boston hostess writes of what she calls uh, his moral magnetism, this ability he has to stir the conscience of wealthy abolitionists uh, and get them to give to his cause, even though he's very vague about what he's really up to. Um, I'll just uh, digress for a moment to say a few things about this slide. This is, of course, uh, Thoreau, who is uh, one of Brown's uh, greatest champions. Um, and on the right are um, a, a group that's known as the Secret Six. This was Brown's innermost uh, core of supporters covertly funneling him money and guns. Um, they're very uh, prominent figures. Four of them are Harvard men. They're ministers, reformers. Uh, two of them are among the wealthiest businessmen uh, in the North at this time. Um, and I'll just add, apropos of nothing, uh, two of them seem to have very bad marriages. Um, uh, Theodore Parker in the lower left, a, a wonderful orator who gave us the phrase, uh, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Uh, kept a copious diary, and I met a scholar a few days ago uh, who's read all of it uh, and found that at one point Parker breaks into Greek, and this scholar decoded it and found that what Parker had written was, my wife is the devil and I can't live with it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
To his right is Samuel Gridley Howe, a, a famous reformer who was married to Julia Ward Howe, who, the poet who gave us the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, and uh, in going through her other writings and poetry, I found a couplet about her marriage in which she wrote, Hope died as I was led unto my marriage bed. Um, anyway, uh, that's the behind the scenes. Um, but there are also uh, scores of men who are ready to fight alongside Brown. And, and one thing I most wanted to do uh, in my research was really bring these extraordinary uh, uh, characters to light. Brown was not a lone gunman. Um, and the people who fought with him were not suicidal zealots or cult followers. Uh, they were individuals. They were farmers and factory workers, fighting Quakers, uh, blacksmiths, bad poets, uh, free blacks, and fugitive slaves, um, who shared Brown's uh, conviction that slavery had to be met with force. Uh, but in other respects, they were very unlike him. Uh, first of all, they were almost all very young men in their late teens and early 20s. Uh, they're reckless, they seek adventure, they misbehave. Uh, and they spend a lot of time courting women. Uh, you know, they're risking their lives to free four million slaves and save the soul of the nation. And they're working that line hard with the girls. Um, I, and as you can see, they're a quite handsome group. This is only a few of them. Um, I didn't expect to find uh, a lot of romance in this story, but I was pleasantly surprised. Um, there were also women in Brown's band. Uh, in the summer of 1859, uh, Brown, uh, posing as a farmer and entrepreneur named Isaac Smith, uh, rents a secluded farmhouse in the Maryland Hills, uh, five miles from Harper's Ferry, where he begins gathering uh, his weapons and men, including three of his own sons. And he's joined there by uh, his daughter, teenage daughter Annie, and daughter-in-law Martha Brown, who are there really to act as lookouts and camouflage for this guerrilla band. Uh, if uh, neighbors or passers-by approach this farmhouse where there seems to be a lot of mysterious comings and goings this summer, uh, Annie meets them in the yard and uh, plays the part of innocent, ordinary farm woman uh, while the guerrilla fighters uh, huddle out of sight uh, in the farmhouse attic. Uh, and Annie writes really wonderful letters about this summer, about the southern fireflies and sleeping on a straw mat in this mountain hideout, and really the thrill and terror of being what she calls the outlaw girl, um, concealing these dashing young fighters, uh, one of whom becomes her first lover. Now, I, I don't mean to suggest by that that all is Fun and games at this uh, summer camp in Maryland, it's not. It's hot, it's crowded, it's tense. Uh, Brown, as usual, has run through all his money. And there's the constant risk of exposure, uh, particularly when the five black members of Brown's band arrive. Um, and one of these men uh, pictured here is Dangerfield Newby. Uh, he's a Virginia-born slave who has recently been freed when his owner moves to Ohio but his wife and children are still in bondage in Virginia, and he is desperate to free them. Uh, he works very hard and saves a really remarkable amount of money for a former slave. He has CDs in Ohio banks so that he can buy their freedom, uh, but their owner uh, raises the price and refuses to sell. 
And this leads to a really uh, a wrenching uh, series of letters uh, from Newby's wife, which I read here at the State Library of Virginia, um, who fears she's going to be uh, sold uh, to a gang lab labor plantation in the Deep South, which was, of course, a common fate for Virginia slaves in this era. I'll just read you a little bit of one of her letters. Oh, dear Dangerfield, come this fall without fail, money or no money, she writes in the summer of 1859. If you do not get me, somebody else will. And then all my bright hopes for the future are blasted. If I thought I should never see you again, this earth would have no charms for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. Your affectionate wife, Harriet. Um, Newby heeds this plea, uh, joins Brown's uh, band at its mountain hideout, carrying Harriet's uh, letters with him, which is why we still have them. Uh, and then in October of 1859, Brown finally leads uh, 18 of his men uh, across the Potomac and into Harper's Ferry, uh, sparking this uh, savage uh, street fight. And the first of his men uh, gunned down in the raid uh, is Dangerfield Newby, uh, shot dead in the street, uh, 50 miles short of his goal of reaching Harriet, who is then sold to a plantation in Louisiana. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount at stake, uh, individually and collectively, um, for all parties uh, caught up in this raid. And I'm not going to walk through the whole uh, raid tonight uh, or the court and prison drama that follows and the impact it has on the nation. You can, you can read the book for that. Um, but I'll, I'll say a few things uh, first just uh, about these uh, headlines on the left here um, the day after uh, uh, the first day of the raid. Um, this raid happens at a remarkable moment in American history, uh, the recent introduction of the telegraph and the explosion of newspapers and newswires in this era uh, mean that this is one of the first breaking news stories in the country's history. Uh, correspondents uh, swarm to the scene, um, uh, sending these you know, breathless dispatches uh, by telegraph that are really uh, front page news around the nation, not just then, but for weeks to follow. Um, and this, of course, uh, has a really shocking impact on the nation, a, a little like 9-11 for us, this uh, biracial band of abolitionists seizing a federal armory 60 miles from the Capitol and vowing to free every slave in the South. Uh, this really uh, jolts the nation, which is, in my view, exactly uh, what Brown intended. Um, but militarily, uh, things uh, don't go quite as well. Um, Brown initially succeeds in crossing this bridge over the Potomac, you can see here, uh, and seizing this really compact uh, industrial town, its armory, uh, freeing slaves from surrounding plantations, uh, and taking about 45 prominent whites hostage. Um, but, you know, his men are inexperienced. Uh, there are no silencers in 1859. Uh, so when nervous raiders fire some shots in the night, Virginians begin to wake up to this invasion of their town. Uh, and by the middle of the first day, they and uh, uh, militiamen arriving from nearby towns have really succeeded in um, surrounding Brown in his uh, position in the armory. And at this point, the raid uh, really becomes a little bit like a bank robbery gone bad, uh, with the robbers uh, you know, and their hostages stuck inside the bank, although it's um, uh, not a bank, obviously. It's this first building on the left, the armory engine house. 
uh, and uh, with no way out uh, except to shoot or negotiate their way out. Um, I'm just going to end by reading a little bit about this uh, sort of point in the raid um, uh, and that I hope kind of shows some of the uh, intimacy and the, the curious mix of kind of courtliness and brutality that characterized this uh, uh, really preview of the Civil War. Uh, one of the characters, uh, just for background, that I'm going to read about uh, is named Aaron Stevens. Um, who's this remarkable, larger-than-life member of Brown's band. He's uh, very tall, broad-shouldered, apparently devastatingly uh, handsome, and he's the only member of Brown's band who has formal military training. Uh, he's a Mexican war veteran who's been court-martialed uh, for what the records call drunken riot and mutiny. Uh, he escapes from military prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, and becomes a, a really ferocious abolitionist fighter. Um, but this brawny warrior uh, also has a very uh, gentle soul. And in the summer leading up to the raid, he falls desperately in love with a uh, music teacher named Jenny Dunbar, uh, who I'll just mention is described as having great eyes full of pathos with exquisite contours and a glory of dark hair. Um, that's about as racy as it gets in these uh, uh, Victorian documents. Uh, exquisite contours, I like that. Uh, sorry, I don't have a picture of her. Um, anyway, um, the part I'm going to read about, uh, oh, so I should mention that he spends all summer writing her these soulful letters, declaring his love and begging her to return it. Um, but the bit I'm going to read about is uh, the afternoon of the first day of the raid when uh, Brown has sent out one of his men, William Thompson, uh, as a peace envoy, and instead he's been seized by the gunmen surrounding the armory. Thompson's seizure under a flag of truce angered Brown and enraged his lieutenant, Aaron Stevens, who was dangerously hot-headed when crossed. His court-martial, five years before, had been triggered by demeaning words from a superior officer, which caused Stevens to draw his gun, declare, I'm as good a man as you, and threaten to blow out the officer's damn brains. Now, in Harper's Ferry, he wanted to take violent retaliation against Thompson's captors. Stevens was dissuaded by a prominent hostage in the engine house, Archibald Kitzmiller, superintendent of the armory. Kitzmiller had been the first man awakened in the night and alerted that the armory was in the possession of an armed band. Going to investigate, Kitzmiller had been seized and held ever since. I can possibly accommodate matters, he said, as Brown and Stevens mulled how to respond to Thompson's capture. Kitzmiller offered to go out as a peace broker himself with Stevens' as escort. Brown agreed to this, sending his own son Watson as a second bodyguard. Stevens and Watson walked out of the armory gate behind Kitzmiller, who waved his white handkerchief. The men proceeded down a narrow street that dead-ended at a raised railroad trestle, beside which loomed the Galt House Saloon. As the men neared it, the saloon's proprietor smashed an upper-story window so he could shoot unobstructed. Then he and a fellow gunman opened fire. Their first volley hit Watson Brown. A moment later, Stevens was also struck. He swore and fired back. Hit again and again, he collapsed. Lying bloodied on the street, Stevens called out to Kitzmiller, who had urged him to attempt a peaceful negotiation. I have been cruelly deceived, Stevens said. Kitzmiller, who had been dragged from his bed before dawn and then taken hostage, replied, I wish I had remained at home. <laughs> Watson Brown retreated to the armory, vomiting blood from a stomach wound. 
His father could do little except fume over the barbarity of his foes. Brown regarded himself as a soldier, subject to traditional rules of battlefield conduct. His hostages abided by this, and not only because they were terrified. Virginians prided themselves on their code of honor, and Brown seemed a man whose word was his bond. Hostages who left the armory as envoys that day pledged to return, and did so. The exception was Archibald Kitzmiller. Caught in the firefight that felled Aaron Stevens, he did not consider his pledge to return binding under the circumstances, he later said, and took refuge in the Wager House Hotel. The bullet-riddled Stevens remained crumpled on the pavement, exposed to a hard rain and the horrified gaze of onlookers. I seen big beefs killed and they did not lose more blood, said a railroad worker who witnessed the scene. But Stevens wasn't dead. After lying still for a few minutes, he began to move and groan. Brown couldn't risk sending out another man to aid his lieutenant, but a hostage volunteered to do so. Joseph Brewer went into the bullet rake street, helped Stevens into the wager house, and returned to captivity in the engine house. In a strange day that mixed cruelty and kindness, dishonor and courage, Brewer's act was among the most extraordinary. Also astonishing was the fortitude of the man he'd rescued. Stevens had already impressed townspeople with his unflinching defense of an exposed position at the armory. Now, lying half naked on a bed in the wager house, where a doctor dressed the wounds to his face, torso, and limbs, Stevens became a figure of awe for his majestic physique. A perfect Samson in appearance, one person wrote. Another described him as the finest specimen of physical manhood I have ever seen. His manner was just as imposing. Though shot six times and surrounded by armed inquisitors, Stevens remained composed and defiant. He expressed no regret for his actions and declared himself fully prepared to die for the cause of freedom. One life for many, he said. Believing himself close to death, Stevens gazed at a picture he wore around his neck of his beloved Jenny Dunbar, to whom he'd written in his last letter, I hope I shall live to see thy lovely face once more. Um, I'm not going to tell you the rest of that story, uh, uh, except to say that uh, he does live to see uh, Jenny's um, lovely face and exquisite contours uh, once more under uh, the most extraordinary uh, circumstances, involves uh, Richmond as well. Um, but I'd rather at this point really uh, open it up for uh, questions, comments, uh, abuse, so just uh, fire away. We have uh, uh, plenty of time, so don't, don't be shy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a real uh, obscure brown factoid. Uh, uh, I didn't even put it in my book. Perhaps I should have. Uh, yeah, Ulysses Grant's father is a tanner, and at one point he's apprenticed to John Brown's father. Uh, he's quite a bit younger than John Brown, so uh, John Brown has already left. Uh, oh, no, this is the father. It's not clear to me from the little that's written about it that he really, you know, you know, Grant didn't know John Brown. His father had a glancing relationship. But, yes, it was through leather tanning that they were connected, uh, not through abolitionism. Yeah. subject that's been covered so many times before. What did you, what, why did you choose it and what do you think you brought to it that distinguishes from mm -hmm. other 
account. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been a, a number of biographies of Brown, some of them quite good. Um, I was a little surprised. I mean, I was always drawn to the story. I mean, I've been a Civil War bore since early childhood and um, lived near Harper's Ferry. I lived in Waterford, Virginia for many years. So I, you know, I love this spooky town of Harper's Ferry. I guess what surprised me when I began poking into it is um, while Brown's been written about quite a bit, the raid itself is just always sort of treated as the last chapter of his biography. And I just felt there was much more there, uh, particularly in the other characters involved who tend to get neglected. Um, and in really the kind of thrilling, dark story of what happens there. Uh, so I really wanted to make the raid um, in all its aspects uh, the focus rather than just Brown, although he's obviously the protagonist. Um, uh, and you know he's, he's threaded all through it. Um, so I think just some of, also we, we don't hear much about the other side. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting town, Harper's Ferry. It's this industrial town uh, with actually very few slaves. Um, and uh, I was interested in who the townspeople were and also, you know, you have Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stort uh, leading the Marines in a counterattack. Stonewall Jackson is there. Um, John Wilkes Booth makes an appearance. You have this weird, it's like a dress rehearsal for the Confederacy at Harper's Ferry. I should mention that Jeb Stort's letters about this are here, am I right? I read them here. Um, so it's a, just, a, I think, a wonderful story that hadn't perhaps been told uh, in all its aspects and also perhaps not for a general audience. Uh, most of the books out there are fairly academic. Yeah. Excuse me. I'd like to change to, thank you. I'd like to change the subject briefly to Confederates in the Attic, which I read this spring with great delight. And it's one of those books I just hated to have end. And I kept thinking, what's happened since? And I bought your book today as a gift in order to see if you'd put in any sequel. Could you give us a very obviously brief uh, yeah. sequel? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say this is sort of Yankees in the attic, although it is. I mean, you know, my previous interest has mainly been in the South and, and its memory of the war, et cetera. And, you know, I think the North is less explored. Um, and we tend to pin it all on the South, both in telling the story of the war, but also in secessionists and fire eaters. You know, they really had their counterparts in these very radical abolitionists on the other side. So in, in that sense, it connects. Uh, otherwise, not a lot. I visit some of the same territory, uh, but um, there aren't the kind of antics um, that I had. because This isn't a ha-ha story. And I do um, do some. I, I follow Brown's night march. I begin the book with a night march uh, from his mountain hideout to Harper's Ferry. I, you know, I go to all the places where the history happened. So in that sense, it's like Confederates in the act. But unfortunately, no Robert Lee Hodge, no bloating. Um, I should mention my very first uh, visit to this building was 15 years ago while on my civil wargasm with Rob Hodge. And we came here in full Confederate, I think he had a Confederate uniform, I had a Union one, it was about 110 degrees. And we were traipsing around Richmond and of course came to pay our respects to the, remind me the, what the name is for the... No, no, the your wonderful murals. The Four Seasons, excuse me. Yes, we also went to the UDC headquarters. They didn't let us in. <laughs> they did after we forced our way in, but they tried to, tried to keep us out. <laughs>
You spoke of uh, other characters. I'm sorry. Uh, other characters who played a role in this. Of, of them, were any of us any great surprises in the, or those who carried it on to make it a national event? Uh, you mean, uh, so we're talking about national figures now, not, not his fellow Raiders so much? Uh, if, if, if that's, I'm sure, I'm not sure I completely caught the question, but uh, if you're talking about major figures who get drawn into it, uh, one of the things I loved is on the northern side, uh, yeah, everybody has to write about John Brown. This is the big story of the day. It would be like, I mean, a tawdry comparison. Herman Cain today, or the, you know, everybody, every columnist, everybody is writing about this. So you have Thoreau, Emerson, uh, one of my favorites, Melville, who, who calls him uh, weird John Brown. Uh, he, I think he, Melville, senses the sort of Ahab quality in Brown. You have all these wonderful uh, Longfellow, everybody in their diaries, uh, letters, every, you know, is writing about it. Um, but perhaps uh, I, what surprised me or, or interested me, particularly at the end of the story, Lincoln becomes a big player in this uh, because this happens on the eve of a presidential election. Uh, and, and while their campaigns weren't anything like ours, uh, Lincoln at this point is really a second-tier candidate for the Republican nomination, you know, Rick Santorum or something. Um, and he kind of uh, uses Brown as a foil. He, he really condemns uh, Brown's acts and says, this is not what the Republican Party is about. We're not about violence. We're not about meddling with slavery in the South. We oppose its expansion. And, and really positions himself uh, as the safely moderate choice in the, Confeder in the uh, Republican field. Um, and there are many other reasons he gets the nomination, but I think this certainly contributes to it. So Brown uh, really has an impact on Lincoln. Um, and then the irony, of course, is as president, uh, Lincoln fulfills, ultimately fulfills Brown's mission with the Emancipation Procl Proclamation. And if you read his second inaugural, about you know every drop of blood you know drawn with the uh, lash you know will be paid with a drop of blood uh, drawn with a sword. I've mangled that. Uh, it it very much echoes Brown's words you know uh, that you know the sins of this guilty land will only be purged with blood. So these two figures who really begin as as opponents almost uh, kind of merge in their deaths uh, and become really bookends to the Civil War. Yeah. How do you handle the Hayward Shepherd issue? Uh huh. Uh, questions about Hayward Shepherd, who is a um, free black railroad worker in Harper's Ferry. Another one of the ironies of this story: he's the first man killed in the raid. These uh, abolitionists who have come to liberate uh, slaves. Uh, it's dark. It's confused. Uh, they order him to stop, and he runs, and he's shot in the back by one of Brown's men. Um, so, and this really confuses and, and really ignites the town. It's the first shooting in this, uh, in this raid. Uh, the interesting part with Hayward Shepard is after the fact, if any of you have been to Harper's Ferry may have seen this, uh, he's held up, well at the time, but also later at the sort of height of um, gone with the wind uh, celebration of the lost cause. The United Daughters of the Confederacy put up a monument in Harper's Ferry to Hayward Shepard in rather contorted language, but basically saying he was the faithful servant who fled his liberators, you know, and wanted, you know, uh, basically slavery was great. Um, the Hayward Shepherd shows slaves were happy. Um, and 
even though he wasn't a slave, he was a, a, a free black man, although as I found in my research, the line between the two was much thinner than I realized. Um, uh, the Park Service didn't know what to do with this. You know, they got to be neutral. For a, a long period, they had it covered up with uh, plywood. Uh, but they've now unveiled it, so it's there, but they've put a kind of interpretive plaque next to it, kind of explaining, you know, this is a piece of history in its own right. So, um, uh, you know, I basically tell his story, what's known of it. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, two questions. I, I was, I'm curious, what was the duration of, of the raid and the standoff? And, and then secondly, as an abolitionist, uh, did he ever have any contact with the uh, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin? My, my memory's fading. I think it's Harriet Beecher. Yep, Harriet Beecher stuff. Yeah. On your first question, the raid starts on a Sunday night, October 16th. Uh, there's a lot of fighting all through the next day, and it ends, the military part of it ends the next morning uh, on the 18th. So it's about 32 hours in all. Um, and, you know, it may seem minor, and, you know, it has this name, John Brown's Raid, which uh, sounds kind of trivial, but I, and, you know, obviously it gets overshadowed very quickly by the bloodshed of the Civil War, but I think if you put yourself in the, in the times, you know, political violence was rare, we hadn't had any assassinations yet, there's almost no one guarding this armory, I mean, no one imagined this kind of thing happening, so even though it was quite small scale, it has this tremendous impact. Um, Harry Beecher Stowe, uh, of course, writes Uncle Tom's Cabin. I've never seen any evidence that they met, but uh, Brown refers to it in his letters, as do his men. It's a you know, major event in the early 1850s because I, I think what uh, people often forget is just what a fringe movement abolitionism was. I mean, this is a tiny minority of the American public, in northern public, in the 1850s. And I think uh, what her novel does is it really brings, uh, you know, uh, slavery alive for a mainstream audience and also kind of makes people more open to listening to abolitionists who up to that point have, they're often referred to as cranks and scolds and ultras, another word I like from the, you know, sort of extremists. Uh, they're really fringe, but I think she helps bring them more into the conversation. Uh, lady right in the middle there, yeah. Uh, the, the question is about Frederick Douglass, who has a very interesting relationship with Brown. Uh, again, one of the, one, something that's remarkable about Brown um, is, you know, many abolitionists are quite condescending towards blacks. Uh, they think they're too docile and racially inferior, really, to fight for their own freedom. It's sort of leave it to us white people. You know, they sort of love them in the abstract. Brown is, is really remarkable. He uh, uh, lives with black people at times. He lives in a black community in upstate New York. Uh, uh, black people stay at his home, and he becomes quite good friends with Frederick Douglass and stays with him for three weeks. And early on when he's plotting this, back in the 1840s, he goes to Douglass and really tries to get his support. He really wants Douglass's support. Um, and Douglass is very impressed by this man, but he thinks his plan is not going to work. 
And this dance kind of goes on for a dozen years until shortly before the raid, they have a secret meeting in a quarry where Brown sort of wraps his arms around him and says, you know, Douglas, come, you know, come with me. It's really a very dramatic scene. You know, uh, when I strike, the bees will swarm and I need you to hive them. And Douglas, as he later writes, what you said is that he saw uh, Harper's Ferry as a steel trap that Brown and his men were going to be caught inside. And I think he, like other African Americans, recognized that, uh, you know, if this thing didn't work, they were going to be the ones who were going to suffer the most. Um, so uh, Brown also courts Harriet Tubman, uh, many others. Um, and five of his men are black, and he does get some support from the local community, but not, I think, what he imagined. Yeah. Hi. Um, when John Brown was captured, was it a foregone conclusion that he would be hanged, or were there people in the federal government that were trying to maybe negotiate because he was representing the North in a sense, was there a big fight between North and South as what would happen to him? Right. Uh, the question is about, uh, yeah, spoiler alert here, yes, John Brown is captured and put on trial, and yes, he hangs in the end. Um, don't tell anyone. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the federal government, I mean, James Buchanan, I have to say, I mean, I knew he was always considered one of the worst presidents, but he's, uh, he is lame. He, this all happens on federal property. This isn't, or not all of it, but much of this isn't even Virginia property. It's a, a U.S. installation. They basically own the town of Harper's Ferry. Um, and, you know, it obviously involves federal issues. He, he just doesn't want any part of it. He's very passive. Uh, uh, the lead lawyer in the case writes him a letter, and, he, and, and Buchanan says, it's a matter of indifference to me whether this is tried by Virginia, whatever. He leaves it to the Virginians who are hungry, Governor Henry Wise in particular, hungry to try Brown. So really the federal thing uh, is in the background. Um, where there's debate, and, and they give him a procedurally fair trial, and they're very intent on doing that. I mean, it not fair in the sense he never had a chance, and the, the jury members are, you know, uh, slaveholders, most of them. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the debate then comes over whether to hang him, uh, and even many Southerners are urging Wise to commute his sentence because they realize it's going to make him a martyr. Um, and it's an interesting question whether uh, if Wise had instead uh, uh, put him in an insane asylum or just locked him up for life, you know, whether uh, this would have had the impact it did. Because he really, um, he makes a crucifixion of his hanging. This is the, uh, the largest irony of this story. And, and uh, again, Brown is this remarkable kind of adaptability. He thinks of himself as this man of action and, you know, derides those who just want to talk. But really, he fails in his actions at Harper's Ferry, but then triumphs through the power of his words and also his courage in, in facing death. So he really, it's a crucifixion uh, by the time he's, or that's what he makes of it. And uh, in retrospect, I think, uh, you know, Wise probably made a mistake in hanging him or in not commuting his sentence. Uh, way in back, the gentleman, or am I missing? Yeah. Oh, oh, please, yeah, just jump in. There are certain events in our lifetime, uh, Pearl Harbor, the shuttle disaster, Kennedy assassination, where we remember distinctly where we were. 
And could one argue that this is, John Brown's raid is the first event in American history that has this, a, a similar characteristic in that you had the advent of the telegraph and railroads, and before that, news spread very slowly. But I suspect that it spread very quickly throughout the nation and throughout the world, and this, in a, in a way, may be that first great shocking event in which news spread quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a, an amazing media moment, this story, you know, in modern parlance, it goes viral. Uh, it's everywhere, and yes, in Europe, they're writing about it. Uh, there are other historians in the audience. Uh, I don't know whether there might be an earlier example. I mean, they've reported from Washington in sort of almost real time. I mean, the Telegraph has been around for about 15 years, but it's expanded rapidly. I can't think of another story like this before this, so I think it would be fair to say this is really certainly the intensity of the coverage. Um, it's quite remarkable, and it's fascinating, to, particularly as a former journalist, to read these reports. Uh, partly because uh, many of the papers are uh, pro-Southern and not only in the South. I mean, some of the papers from New York and Boston are very anti-abolitionist. Um, and even they uh, are struck by Brown's sort of presence. They sort of depict him as a monster in one sense. But he has this courage and sense of honor that I think actually speaks to Southerners. Um, uh, you know, Governor Wise, you know, calls him... Uh, a vain fanatic, but, you know, sincere and, you know, the best bundle of nerves I've ever seen. You know, there's this sort of grudging respect for Brown that you see coming through in the news reports. So uh, the other thing it does that would be different from our own day, I don't think it would be the same if this happened today, is that Brown doesn't have apparently a, a good speaking voice. He's a little like Abraham Lincoln, who apparently also was not a good public speaker. Uh, but his words in print, you know, because that's how people were reading them uh, or experiencing them, there's no TV or radio, um, have this uh, tremendous power. Uh, he has this sort of plain, very expressive, very direct style that translates brilliantly to, uh, to print. Many people in this era are very wordy and they go on and on and on. He gives this courtroom speech, four minutes, that just lays it all out. And in fact, that speech alone, I think, does more than anything to uh, turn the tide of Northern opinion and really uh, make him a martyr, because he's initially been condemned in the North. And then it's sort of, he makes such a moral statement against slavery and essentially says, you know, that not opposing slavery is also a sin, kind of, what are you doing? Um, and he does it in, in a style that has this tremendous power. And it's all because there are this courtroom full of reporters. Good one for the press. Yeah. Right. Uh, the question is about what happened to Secret Six, and uh, you know, I, I struggled to find humor in this story, uh, and I really had fun with the Secret Six. Um, uh, they're, you know, they're these very uh, idealistic and quite radical in their views, but they're not profiles in courage. Uh, when, <laughs> when the raid goes bad and they're implicated, uh, one of them is already overseas, Theodore Parker, and three others immediately flee for Canada. And my favorite, uh, Garrett Smith, uh, checks himself into the Utica, New York insane asylum uh, <laughs> to avoid prosecution. Um, and only one of them stands firm, and he's an interesting guy, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, 
uh, who later, among other things, becomes mentor to Emily Dickinson. He's this man of many parts and fights in the Civil War, and he's writing these outraged letters to the others. You know, is there no honor among Confederates? You know, we, you know, we've sent John Brown and his men to their death, and we're all fleeing to Canada. And, and they're writing him letters saying, burn this, you know, after you read it. <laughs> and he writes back in one of his letters, no need to burn this. So I would say one of them is pretty gutsy. The others, um, oh, and Garrett Smith, by the way, who goes into the insane asylum, uh, the treatment of the day apparently was morphine and cannabis. Um, <laughs> and he comes out saying, I remember nothing of 1859, <laughs> which may well have been true. Uh, but they're very interesting people in their own rights and have very long careers. This is really just a chapter in, in very uh, involved careers. So I, I had fun telling their stories. One more? One more? Uh, lady here? Yeah. Oh, I don't know who. Uh, oh, okay. Okay, we can do two because my answer is very quick to that. Was that what's my next book going to be? I have no idea. <laughs> But I, I will pay a finder's fee, so <laughs> meet, meet me in the lobby if you have an idea. So we have, yeah, one more. Yes, was there any real possibility that the actual raid could have been a big military and strategic success, or was it doomed just by definition? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's something I explore a lot in the book because... Uh, Brown kind of changes his story. We can't know for sure what was in his mind. Um, and he tells slightly different things to different people. I put a lot of time into this, and I, I don't think it was a plausible plan. And also, he does nothing necessary to make it possible. He doesn't have wagons with him to carry off the guns. He doesn't have some place in the mountains where he can take all these people he thinks are going to go with him. On and on. Uh, mysteriously, he doesn't even touch the 100,000 guns in Harper's Ferry while they're under his control. Um, and my own view is that uh, he hoped this very ambitious scheme would work and set off a, uh, you know, a, a slave insurrection, really, or that people would come rushing to him. Uh, but that he felt uh, either way it was kind of a win-win. Uh, either that would happen or he would die a martyr in this fight and uh, shock the nation into confronting this great issue and bring on the great conflict that he felt was necessary to end slavery. And in that sense, he triumphed. So, well, I'm getting the cut sign, but I'm happy to talk to you individually outside. Thank you.